So I started this message series about the virtues with courage, because Aristotle said that courage is the preeminent virtue among all the others because it makes the other virtues possible. And so I end today with patience, because patience is the virtue that makes all the other virtues achievable. It makes them real. See, virtues are not just individual acts that you can go and commit. That can be done in a moment. And you could mean it, you could not mean it, but it may not reflect your interior state of self. Virtues are about the character you possess. And coming to know the character that we have, what really exists inside of our hearts so that it shows up in our hands, it takes a while to be able to discern, to be able to figure out the contours of our character. The meaning of who we are is revealed over time and revealed through time. And we have to be willing, if we are patient, to give space and time for the true shape of our hearts to emerge. Simply put, patience allows our true growth, our true flourishing in life to happen. Patience is also, as I recognized this past week, very much the better part of what it is to be truly happy. Not just to experience momentary pleasure, but to have true happiness, which is pleasure in the context of also experiencing meaning. Now, I said I experienced this this past week, and this is because I am an absolute fan, a devotee, you might even say. Fan doesn't quite capture it. A devotee of the TV show Lost. Now, Lost rewards patience like no other thing that has ever, ever, ever been on television. I mean, things that happened this past week, the end of season five had me going back, and many, I could see some heads nodding there as well, too. Had you going back to things that happened in season one, and you're like, aha, now, now it made sense. But I'm not going to tell you exactly how that happened and how my patience was rewarded, because I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it yet. And I would encourage you, spend some time in your life at some point renting all the past seasons and seeing them. <laughs> I tell you this, that I'm not going to spoil it for you because... Because I get no profit from telling you to rent these past seasons. Only the profit by which it profits the state of your soul. That's how I benefit. I'm not going to give away any of the spoilers. I wouldn't do that for you because I had the end of season three spoiled for me. I won't tell you exactly how it happened, but I knew it was coming. Season three contained an absolute game changer, an absolute game changer. And so I can say literally, but let me caveat these few things over here. With the exception of those times in life when I have lost someone I've loved, and those times in life when I have treated someone else poorly or cruelly or have myself been treated poorly or cruelly. With the exception of those big caveats, I have no bigger regret in life than the fact that the end of season three loss was ruined for me. <laughs> that includes seeing my beloved Yankees lose four in a row to the Red Sox in 2004. No bigger regret other than the real, real big sadnesses in my life or the mistakes I've made. Now, Lost stopped being long ago, and never really was, but this is the way it was billed, about really pretty people 
stranded on some strange island somewhere that no one else can really find. Lost is about the most ancient, which is to say, I think, in some ways, the most wonderful human story that there is. A redemption story. A story of people going from the state of being lost and fragmented and broken to a place of deeper wholeness in their lives. Now, there's one season left, so they're not quite there yet. The thing that I love about Lost is that things, people, scenarios do not resolve quickly if they resolve at all. The minute you think something is resolved, there's a deeper layer, a deeper level that comes upon you. And now you can actually start to make sense of something that happened way back long ago. Things do not resolve. They reveal deeper layers of meaning, but they don't really resolve. They double back on themselves, and through that doubling back, we understand about then what we couldn't back then. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Donald Miller. He wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, and this theology isn't mine, but I recognize some of the contours and the shape of my own heart and my own life and faith journey in Donald Miller's writings. There's a little epigram that begins his book, Blue Like Jazz, and it reads like this. He says, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater one night in downtown Portland, where I live, and I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes, and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It is as if they are showing you the way. And then he concludes, I used to not like God because God doesn't resolve. It's like an old rabbinic take on the tale of the burning bush. You know that in Exodus, the burning bush. Well, this old rabbinic take says it's sort of an obvious story. I mean, we see things blaze and bushes blaze all the time. You can walk right by it and said, burning bush, no big deal, and keep on going with your life. The challenge of witnessing that particular quote-unquote miracle is that you have to stand and watch and see that the burning bush does not resolve. It just keeps burning and burning and burning and burning. That is where patience comes in. When we move away from seeing our life as something that is seen by rote to something that we can see with fresh and clear eyes and through those fresh and clear eyes start to realize that maybe we are seeing something new. What lost is about, what jazz is about, what God is about, what all spirituality is about is really about our view of how we expect time to unfold for us. For some cultures and some people, The structure of time is very much like, show that slide, a circle. Things just sort of come around and 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 come around and, and, you know, you get my point. Repetition over and over and over and over again. The second model of time, next slide please, straight line. This is very much the quote unquote western way of understanding time. Are you making progress or are you backsliding? Are you going forward? Are you going backward? 
But I think both of these understandings of time are inadequate. There's a third model, a third way, which I think is better and deeper and more accurately describes the meaning and the structure of our lives when we grow, especially in ways that are growing our character. It is like, and sorry, I don't have three-dimensional glasses to give you because that would make this effect really real, if the spiral is jutting out toward you right now. The shape of the spiral in this way says, things repeat but they don't repeat exactly. The three-dimensional nature of this shows that there is progress that we can make, but it is not just a matter of letting go of the past absolutely and realizing something new every moment. There is repetition, there is continuity, but there is also change and there is growth. In the spiral, like there is in jazz, and I think particularly this morning, of John Coltrane's most amazing piece, Love Supreme. Do you know that? Coltrane's Love Supreme. It's incredibly chaotic. It is incredibly wonderful. He actually said, this is my musical prayer. This is my love prayer to God. Now, if you've ever listened to Coltrane's Love Supreme, what you will hear over and over, spaced throughout the 35 minutes or so that the piece contains, is the same theme, but developed very, very differently, slightly differently, depending upon where you are in his love prayer to God. Patience allows us to see that we and our own lives are very much that same kind of theme. We develop over time and develop through time, not the same thing, not repetition one after another, after another, after another, just around and around and around the circle. But patience allows us to see that there are common patterns, but there also can be growth and movement forward. Patience allows us to have the perspective on our lives to allow things to emerge, to allow things to grow and to become. Now, this is the time of the year which for many people, I know some of you might be related to people or maybe you're teaching in colleges or universities, this is the commencement time of the year. This is a time in which things begin, ends and begin. And so I want to tell you one of my favorite stories about the fruits of patience that actually involves, literally, fruit. It involves a couple, and actually I have to say at this point they may be apocryphal. Maybe there's a version of this story in every college campus, but it was true on mine, so I'm going to tell it to you as if I know 100% it absolutely happened. There are these two roommates, first year in college. They went out late one night, as first year college students like to do, and indeed some of us did all the way through college, and, well, let's say they enjoyed themselves far into the evening. One enjoyed himself a little bit more than the other, so the next day came, and the first one rousted his friend, his roommate, to get him out of bed and go to breakfast, and he said, no, nah, I'm not moving anywhere. Can you just please, 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 please bring me back something to drink, please, like my kingdom for Gatorade, please. And the first roommate, who actually did get up and shower and took himself to breakfast, said begrudgingly, okay, I'll get you your Gatorade. And about an hour and a half later, he came back, and the roommate, who was still lounging in bed, nursing his headache, heard that a bottle had been placed down on his bedside table. And he said, ah, sweet Gatorade, sweet relief. And he turned over and he grabbed the bottle, and he saw that it was prune juice. <laughs> he didn't open it, just the thought of it almost made him throw up. That's not the end of the story. Throughout the rest of their four years together, 
in really creative ways, these two roommates who became best friends spent their time ever more creatively so, ever more surprisingly so, handing back and forth this decrepit bottle of prune juice to each other. When one of them went to study abroad, what was waiting for him in his dorm room, his dorm space in Florence, where he had gone to study the masters, was the bottle of prune juice. During their senior year, when they were both writing honors theses, it was well known that each of them had established patterns by which they went to go to their study carol in the library. And so one day, one of the friends excused himself early from dinner where he was at the table with his other friend, and he went up onto the top of the library, and just at the time the other friend was making his way up the ramp into the library, that bottle of prune juice was lowered very, very slowly on fishing line and popped right into his face. Almost like that duck from, uh, is it What's Your Line? And then finally, commencement day. The one who was not in possession of the prune juice went up to receive his diploma, got his diploma, but the president turned his back, said, wait a second, turned around, handed him the prune juice. Game, set, match. Actually, I like to envision that that wasn't the end of the story, that all the way until the ends of their lives, these two friends forged through comedy and through shared experience of a decrepit bottle of prune juice, that the one who goes first into the great beyond goes with the bottle of prune juice with them. You have it last, my friend. You're the final one. This is the basis of so much true. I'm not talking Pratt Falls slapstick, although that's funny. But this is the basis of so much true, real comedy in life. Wait for it. Wait for it. Comedy requires patience. Comedy also requires the joy of figuring things out over time. You couldn't just hand the bottle of prune juice back after you got it. No, you had to be more creative. Because that made the story so much more rich. I love what the Dalai Lama says. He's got a great word that he uses over and over again. He says we are called to investigate. Investigate the, sor the sources and the understandings of our trouble when we struggle in life. Not just deal with it and push it away, but investigate Almost a kind of science of spirituality. Investigate what it is that is causing us to struggle in our lives. And in this way, what the Dalai Lama is teaching is that patience is not, as is too often confused to be, passivity. Patience is not passivity. Patience is diligence. Patience is working with what you have here right now, right with you and giving yourself fully to it. Patience is always so necessary, especially, I think, in this time in many people's lives, when not just in the biological way, although in probably that way as well, too, conception is sexier than education, than execution. I mean, we're coming up on Father's Day in a couple weeks, and you will probably hear this said on some talk show somewhere, that any fool can make a child, but it takes a real adult man to actually raise one. Conception is sexier than execution. But to get to that place of deeper fulfillment of our dreams, patience is required. One of my favorite thinkers, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, sort of a classic brooding Dane, sometimes described as depressing and not really that, but I wouldn't call him happy-go-lucky in any way. 
He said that there are three, three primary ways in which people live their lives. The aesthetic, the ethical, and then finally the spiritual. And they correlate to those three sort of geometric patterns that I showed you about how to understand our lives in time. The aesthetic is the circle, round and round and round and round it goes. The ethical is the straight line. The spiritual is that three-dimensional spiral. There's a thinker named Michael Zimmerman who was trying to describe what it is to live your life as an aesthetic person, as Kierkegaard would understand it. And it's not about appreciating art. It is all about the pleasure that is sought in the moment. But this isn't like an Eckhart Tolle power of now kind of thing. It's actually the shadow side of that. At first, it seems to be all about the moment, but it's not. It's about living with a kind of impatience that says, I want what I want when I want it, and I want it all now. And if I don't get it all now, then I will not live fully here in this moment. I'm going to tell you on a personal note as well that this is the best description of the reality of the heart of addiction that I have ever heard. And ultimately, although I would not have explained it this way almost four years ago, it is ultimately my tiredness with living in this way as why I gave it the bottle and got sober. Sort of a lengthy description, but it's really important. Zimmerman says, for the esthete, there is no sense that he belongs to the past or the future. Time becomes a series of now moments which must be filled with pleasurable distractions. Although he is bound to the present, he is not satisfied with what it offers. He cannot be here now because he wants all future possibilities to be realized here, actualized in this present moment. And as a result, there is never enough time for anything. He races through life thinking that as each moment ticks away, he is missing out on some sort of gratification. Because he is constantly fleeing from the awareness of his own mortality, he elects to remain locked in his own ego. Impatience says, if I cannot have it now, I will fritter away what is mine now. Patience says, what I have now, even if it is not much, even if I deem it to be poor, not quite worthy, even if it will be quite different from what I will have in the future and I might expect to have better or more in the future, patience says that what I have now is sufficient because it is what I am right now and it is the best that I can work with. And so patience allows us to open up the blessing of what it means to be truly diligent in this life. A few weeks back, and I thought about this after I'd read it, about a lot of the kids in our area. This is a kind of, you know, high-achieving area. There's a lot of stress. Kids, I hear it all the time in their schedules when you tell me about it. There are a lot of things going on. There are a lot of expectations around children here in Chester County. It's a relatively, and indeed, we can take away that modifier when we look at the rest of the world. It is an affluent part of the world. There's a New Yorker article on what they call neuroenhancers. These are things like Adderall, other drugs like it, that I know some people and some children take because they have legitimate ADHD and problems focusing. But the neuroenhancer part of this is that it's starting to be taken by many, many people. And maybe you've tried it yourself. I don't know. 
this next set of drugs are all focused on helping you focus better, it would seem. And it's coming to be called cosmetic neurology in the same way that there is cosmetic surgery. That you can, as some of the people who are real aficionados and fans of this cosmetic neurology said, hack your own mind. Mind hacking in the same way you would hack a computer and make yourself work much more effectively than you could otherwise. Now, the problem in the shadow side to all these neuro enhancers is that especially in an area like this one, and especially for children, there is so much social pressure to achieve and to be the best that you can be. It's almost like that social pressure in baseball that brought along the performance-enhancing drug and the steroid scandal. For some people, it may actually seem irresponsible that you are not maximizing your competitive advantage over another person, over another player, over another student. There may even, especially in an economy like this one, seem to be an economic imperative that you are maximizing all that you can. But the cost of this can be great. The interview, one of the interviews in the article was with a guy named Paul McHugh, a psychiatrist in Johns Hopkins. And he said that at least once a year, a parent or parents, very anxious, bring in their child, very often a boy, who isn't achieving quite enough to make themselves happy. And what they want from this psychiatrist are the meds to make it so. We want him to focus better. And what Dr. McHugh says is that the child may not have the same exact superior IQ as the parents do, but that the child may have other qualities, grace, charm, athletic ability. And so the doctor conceives his job to be very different than what the parent wants. The doctor's job is to get the parent to adjust to the child and not the other way around. He says that if the idea that the only college your child can go to is Harvard, maybe that is the idea that needs adjusting. This is a high-stress, high-work, high-achieving part of the world. There are a lot of responsibilities. There is a lot of affluence. The shadow side of all that affluence is very simply impatience, that we want to do and do and do some more. And that's why this new class of neuroenhancer drugs is potentially, I want to say potentially risky, because there's an argument to be made that, of course, people are free to do with their bodies what they want to. And there's some people who argue legitimately that, frankly, those of you who pour about eight cups of coffee into your body every day are already doing a form of neuroenhancing. But this takes it to a different level. There is already the dependency, the possibility for dependency, for addiction. But even more... It heightens a social problem that's already ours. The potential to just drone on and drone on and drone on and focus so much on just one aspect of life that the other aspects of life drop away. We focus not on the development of ourselves, but upon the efficiency of ourselves. And in this way, in this way, we start to recognize that other parts of life start to go by the wayside. August Wilson was a playwright who wrote for six hours a day, six hours a day standing up in his basement apartment in Seattle. 
And he kept these words scrawled over his computer to inspire him. It's a Buddhist aphorism that says it is about the work, not the reward. It is about loving the process of the work, not the end state. So that, in fact, the work might become the reward itself. For those of you who have or maybe would be tempted, and you're in no part of my story, I would be tempted to take neuroenhancers. I would be tempted to squeeze a couple more hours effectively out of every day. I'm not going to do it, but I understand the temptation. What I also think about is the problem with that. Is what we articulate here at Wellsprings is what we call the thirst for fulfillment in our beliefs. We believe that a growing, honest, spiritual life fills our God-shaped holes and our deepest yearnings. Efforts to fill these holes with materialism, unhealthy relationships, and substance abuse lead to despair and loneliness. All those good things, the real relationships, the quality and time-sustained spiritual growth, the spiritual practices that I know so many of you go day after day after day to to reground yourselves. These are exercises in patience. Patience is about falling in love with your life one day and one step at a time. It is about a willingness to become yourself over time because I tell you we and you don't resolve. We don't resolve. We grow, we develop. We fall on our faces, we make mistakes, hopefully not so bad that they injure too many other people besides ourselves, but we and you will not resolve. You literally do not re-solve because I do not believe the best way to understand human life is that you are a problem to be solved. It's not the way that I understand who we really are. Whether you love the facts that you won't resolve, or whether this makes you terribly anxious. Well, I think that's up to whether or not you are patient. This is the blessing, in some ways, of what it means to be alive, that we don't resolve, but instead that we develop. Patience will give you the gift of taking you from being a seeker who always is spying something way down the road, way down the road there, hoping that someday you will find it, and at that point you will be complete then. Patience allows you to go from being a seeker to becoming a pilgrim. The person who is recognizing that there is progress in life to make, but that greater something, whatever you call that something, your spiritual growth, God, the spirit of life, the ground of being, whether you give it no name whatsoever, that something that encourages you to grow, that animates your very life. Although you don't know it now like you will then, a pilgrim recognizes patiently that it is already a part of your life right now. If you're looking for it later, it probably won't be there later. If you look for it now, it will be later there again as well. I'm going to leave you with this one final image. And for me, it's both my favorite metaphor about the spiritual life And it is about the practice of patience. Whenever I feel called to investigate one of the sources of my own struggle, sorrow, or suffering, 
and I find myself too quickly wanting to get to the root of the issue. I think not strip mining, but archaeology. See, strip mining is all about blasting away the top of the mountain to get to the good stuff in between, but the problem is that process pollutes us. You ever seen an archaeologist at work? An archaeologist at work, patiently, painstakingly, they have that dugout. They have that dugout and they have it roped off. And what they do is they take out their tiny little brush and they apply very, very gently, very, very gently so they can see the treasure that's been buried in the ground all along. And they can allow it to reveal. They can allow it to reveal itself. This is the joy, finally, of patience, which often is not thought of as a joyful thing. But that's why patience is the virtue that makes all other virtues achievable. Patience will allow you the time, even if you don't think you have the time, to uncover and to discover and to do so in the right, gentle, persistent way what the truth of your life really is. So I wish you patience, especially if you are like me, a completely impatient person. But it will change you, and we will grow. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Patient source and ground of being. We are talking patience in the hundreds of millions of years now. The patience of creation, which is not once and done long ago and far away, but patience that allows creation to continue to unfold and evolve and grow. May we have the gift of taking the long view of this life. Recognizing that it is not about sitting in the waiting room, waiting, hoping that someday, someday perhaps. But here, this day right now, magically, mysteriously, in the midst of all those hundred million years that have brought us to this day, May we know that the universe is a patient place. That we can, with this mindset, diligently work with what is ours right now. Knowing that it is only with this patient work and with this kind of devoted life that our lives will truly become what we seek and what we hope for. And finally, what we are. Amen.